Hi, friends. This is Pastor Dan Jackson. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Jacobswell Church. My hope and prayer is that this message will be a blessing to you and lead you into worshiping and enjoying our great and gracious God. With that said, let me encourage you to use this message as a supplement to and not a replacement of a local church. Christ did not establish his church simply for us to consume messages, but so that we could be intimately invested in each other's lives as an authentic covenant community. Again, thank you for listening. And if you want more information about Jacobswell Church, please visit our website at www.jacobswellgb.org. You know, uh, it is, it's that time of the year for my family. Uh, I have a family of six people uh, where we go two by two and three by three to the dentist. And um, I think we do it twice a year, once a year. I don't know. I just do what my wife says to do. But, but we, we, we go to the dentist and uh, I, I'm okay with the dentist. I don't need sedation dentistry. It's, it's fine for me. Um, but one of the things that, that I don't care for when I go to the dentist a lot of times uh, is, is when the dental assistant is, is, has her hands in my mouth and is cleaning my teeth and asks me a bunch of questions. Um, I don't know if you experienced this, but they will be in your mouth and they will say things like, what was your childhood like? And it's like, how do I make this answer as quick as possible? I'll, it was fine. Okay, just keep cleaning. I, I don't want to talk with your hands in my mouth. Well, I went this week and the dental assistant did a great job. Uh, just let me rest at peace as she cleaned my teeth. Uh, but what I noticed is that the cleaning was extra abrasive this time. She was uh, scratching very hard for a very long time and it was even painful. And so as she got to the end of cleaning my teeth, she asked me the question, uh, what are your dental cleaning practices? And so I said to her, well, I brushed twice a day. And she's like, oh, that's very good. Keep doing that. But I don't floss. Uh, I know. <laughs> I can feel you judging me. I can feel it. Oh, man. Let's close in prayer. All right. So, so, so I confess my sin uh, that I, I, I don't floss like I should. Uh, to which she said, repent. No, she didn't say that. Um, but she said, well, uh, you really should floss uh, because there's a lot of buildup on your teeth. And if you floss, it will get rid of that buildup and you probably won't have cavities. I didn't have any cavities this time uh, by the grace of God, but, but, but it will keep cavities away. So she said, you know, just keep, keep, keep a box of floss by uh, your, your chair that you sit in at night when you watch TV. And so she gave me this little box of dental floss. I brought it home. I put it next to my chair uh, where I haven't used it yet, but I plan on using it. I plan on using it. Um, I mentioned this a couple weeks ago, uh, but, but for the seven churches, uh, this is a spiritual check-in. A spiritual check-in in which uh, Jesus is talking to the churches and he is praising them for what they are doing good. He says, keep doing that. But then he also reveals the problem of what they're not doing wrong. They're blind spots. And we all have blind spots. And so he's revealing their blind spots. And he is showing them how to turn from their blind spots and to walk in the way of faithfulness. And then he's making promises of heavenly blessings to those who turn, who turn from their sin and turn to Christ and pursue faithfulness to Christ in the midst of their situations. Today, it is 
Pergamum's turn uh, to get their check-in from Jesus, their spiritual check-in from the great physician. And just as a way of reminder of where we've been, do we have a map up there? Uh, so John is writing uh, from the island of Patmos, which is south uh, west of Ephesus. Uh, and so he starts by writing to Ephesus, uh, which we covered two weeks ago. And if you remember, their problem uh, was that they had lost the love they had at first uh, for Christ and for others. Uh, he praised them for their, for their doctrinal purity and that they wouldn't put up with false teachers. Uh, but their problem was that they had lost their first love. And then he promises to them uh, heavenly blessings uh, if they return to their first love in Christ. Then he writes to Smyrna, and so he's going along this postal route, you can see, and, and Jesus writes to Smyrna, and he praises them uh, for enduring suffering faithfully. And he has no problems with them. He doesn't write anything, any sort of rebuke towards them, but he encourages them to continue to, to follow Christ faithfully and fearlessly in the midst of great persecution and affliction and promises to them uh, that they will not have to taste the second death, if you remember that, that they will be with Jesus forever in paradise. Now Jesus moves uh, continued north up to Pergamum. And that is the church that he is writing to today. And so if you would, uh, please open up to Revelation chapter 2. We'll be looking at verses 12 through 17. In the Red Bible, it is page 1029. Again, if you don't have a Bible, you'll need one. Grab one from the back uh, under the, the offering basket and turn there, page 1029 in the Red Bible. And just as a way of reminder, uh, these letters are not written uh, to our church, but they are written for our church. And so as we read through these letters to the seven churches, it's a great opportunity for us uh, to evaluate the church, the church universal throughout the world, the church in America, the church in Green Bay, Jacob's Well Church, and even to evaluate our own hearts, uh, to be encouraged uh, in what we are doing well, uh, but to also be uh, notified or, or, or shown what we are not doing well, uh, and then to be reminded of the promises of God uh, for those who trust in Christ. And so that's, that's what we have again today here to the church in Pergamum. So Revelation chapter 2, verse 12 through 17. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teachings of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, so that they might eat food, sacrifice to idols, and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold to the teachings of the Nicolaitans. Therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone, with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Let's pray. Lord God, as we continue to read your message to your beloved bride, your church, may we receive it with humble hearts, God. 
Help us, Lord, not to be defensive or dismissive, but to be receptive to what you have to teach us today. We need your Holy Spirit to do that in our hearts and in our lives. And so we pray that you would do it as you have been so faithful to. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So again, Jesus, the great physician of our soul, is doing this spiritual check-in to encourage what they are doing well, to convict and to correct and to delight their souls in what is true. And so let's look through that, the, the praises of Jesus, the problems Jesus have, and the promises of Jesus. First, Jesus praises for the church in Pergamum. Look at verse 13 with me. Jesus says, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. When Jesus says, I know where you dwell, I don't think he's talking about, I know where you dwell geographically, although that is also true. Uh, but what he is saying is, I know where you dwell in the climate of moral and spiritual depravity. I know how bad it is where you are. And, and the indication, the first indication that's very bad where they are is that Jesus calls it Satan's throne. Now, what does it mean that Pergamum is Satan's throne? Well, Pergamum uh, was known as a center for pagan worship. Uh, Asclepius, I don't know if I said it right, but was the god of healing uh, who was worshipped there, and he was referred to as a savior. And the emblem of this god was the serpent, which is the very symbol of Satan. In addition to that, there were also made many pagan altars, and each uh, were very lavishly decorated for these, uh, for these gods that people would come and worship. On top of that, there was a great altar to Zeus, which was named one of the seven wonders of the world. Pergamum was also the capital city of that province, uh, and so it was the center of emperor worship. And so people were required to come and to burn incense uh, to an image of the Caesar and to proclaim that Caesar is Lord, which was dangerous for Christians and a problem for Christians because they declared Jesus to be Lord. For all of these reasons, and probably more, Jesus says, I know that you live in Satan's throne. And then he continues in verse 13, yet you hold fast my name and you did not deny my faith. And so they're holding fast to Jesus' name means that they did not deny his faith, means that they did not reject Jesus as Lord. You know, certainly it would have been tempting to deny Christ for the comforts of the Roman Empire, yet they held fast to the name of Jesus. They did not deny the name of Jesus, even in the midst of great temptation and tribulation. And it continues and says, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who is killed among you, where Satan dwells. This is the first and last verse that mentions Antipas, but what a great thing to be said about a human being, that he was a faithful witness even unto death. Evidently, Antipas was being persecuted, was, was, be, being, um, was being tempted to deny Christ, and yet he stayed faithful to Christ even at the cost of his own life. And Jesus says, you have done the same. Even when the persecution was turned up, even when Christians were being put to death for claiming Jesus to be Lord, you held fast to my name. You stayed faithful to me in that way. Jesus ends by calling Pergamum the place where Satan dwells. 
Satan's throne was a nickname for that city. I think a, a modern American example uh, would be Sin City. Everybody knows, I think most people know, if I say Sin City, what city I am talking about. A city that is full of spiritual and moral uh, depravity. Um, a, a city where Satan has his way. And yet, as we look at the scriptures, what we see is that Satan really has dominion that God has allowed over all of the world, even Green Bay, Wisconsin. In, in John 16, Jesus calls Satan the ruler of this world. Ephesians 2 calls Satan the prince of the power of the air. 1 Corinthians 4 says that Satan is the God of this age. God has given some degree of authority over the current world to Satan. And so while we know Satan's influence is everywhere, we also acknowledge that Evil and depravity are far worse in certain parts of our world, even far parts of our city, uh, parts of our city that, that we often move away from. But I think it's important to note here in this passage that Jesus does not tell the Christians to flee from the city, to abandon the city. Even though he calls it Satan's throne and the place where Satan dwells, Jesus does not tell them to run away. Rather, Jesus praises them for holding fast to the name of Jesus while remaining where Satan dwells. This is important because I think uh, Christians have baptized an escapist mentality that we are to move away from the brokenness of the world into secluded confines of the country where we can uh, hang out with our holy huddle and judge those who are worse than us. But this is not what Christ encourages them towards, nor is this what Christ demands of us. He demands of us to engage into a broken and fallen world that we might bring the light of Christ as I mentioned last week, uh, when I went off to college, I joined a fraternity house. And in the fraternity house, sin of all sorts was, was not only acceptable, but it was celebrated and cheered for. It's a place that most Christian parents would not want their kids to go. And so while I was there in the fraternity house, there were even Christians saying to me, you should move out of this fraternity house. You shouldn't be there. Look at how awful it is. But my campus minister knew better. He knew that God had called me there to this place to be an instrument of God. And he knew that I loved my fraternity brothers and that I loved Jesus and I wanted to join those two together. And so while I was there, by God's grace, was able to invite fraternity brothers to church, invite them to the campus ministry, to start up Bible studies in the fraternity house. And through being in Satan's throne, was able to bring others to faith in Christ. It was a tremendous place of spiritual growth for me, but also a place that God could use me to extend his light into a lot of darkness. And so there was a pressure from my Christian friends to, to, to flee from the fraternity house, to not turn back, to run away from it. 
And I remember one summer when I was in college, uh, I went to work at a Christian camp, which was wonderful because they were also uh, on mission for Christ. And there was a quote that I heard by a guy named C.T. Studd that was so encouraging to me. For those of you who don't know, C.T. Studd was a legendary 19th century cricket player uh, who also had an inheritance of millions of dollars and yet gave it all away uh, to, to be a missionary in India and in um, Africa and in China, some very dark places where there was no Christian presence. And this is the quote that he said that was so encouraging to me. He says this, I think we have it on the screen. Maybe, maybe not. He said this, some want to live within the sound of church or chapel bells. I want to run a rescue shop within a yard of hell. Let me say that again. He says, some want to live within the sound of church or chapel bells. I want to run a rescue shop within a yard of hell. Here is the point. Some Christians will tell you to run away from sinners. And yet sinners loved to be with Jesus and Jesus loved to be with sinners. And so Jesus is praising the church in Pergamum. He's praising them for, for dwelling in the midst of the presence of Satan within Satan's throne and yet in the midst of that, clinging to Jesus, being faithful to Jesus, proclaiming that Jesus is Lord even when there is great hostility against them. And so that is the praise that Jesus has for the church of Pergamum. Jesus moves on to talk about problems with the church in Pergamum. And the first problem that he has with the church of Pergamum is the practice of sexual immorality. Look at verse 14 with me. He says this, but I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food, sacrifice to idols, and practice sexual immorality. Balaam and Balak and the story of these guys come from the Old Testament, from the book of Numbers. In Numbers chapter 20 through 25, Israel is in the midst of wandering in the wilderness for 40 years. And they come to the plains of Moab. And the king of Moab, a man named Balak, hears about Israel coming. And he is very afraid because he has heard about what Israel's God had done to the Amorites, how he had destroyed them. And so Balaam is very afraid of the Israelites. And so he goes uh, sorry, King Balak is very afraid. And so he goes to a diviner named Balaam. And he comes to Balaam and he asks Balaam to curse Israel because he knows that when Balaam pronounces blessings, blessings happen. When, they, when he pronounces curses, curses happen. And so he comes to Balaam and he asks him to pronounce a curse on Israel because, as he says, they are too mighty for me. Unfortunately for King Balak, the Lord speaks to Balaam, who is not a part of the people of God, but is still kind of this, this, this non-believing prophet. He speaks to Balaam, and he tells them that, that God tells Balaam that, that the people of God will not be cursed, but that they will be blessed. And if Balak goes against them, he will be destroyed. And so this prophet, Balaam, passes that message on to King Balak, who is not very happy about it. And so King Balak goes back to him again and again, seeking curses against the people of God. And yet every time he goes, Balaam pronounces blessings upon the people of God. And so here is King Bala, ba Balak, unable to curse the Israelites, unable to go against them with sword and shield to defeat them. And so what does King Balak do? If a frontal assault of war is not going to overcome the people of God, how can he overcome the people of God? 
Well, he decides to do it by taking the backdoor approach. Instead of fighting Israel with swords and shields, he fights them with sexuality and really good food. We read about this in Numbers 25, verses 1 through 5. It says, while Israel lived in Shittim, the people began to whore with the daughters of Moab. We find out later that this is actually Balaam's idea, which King Balak put into practice. It says, these invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So Israel yoked himself to Baal of Peor, a false god. It says, and the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And the Lord said to Moses, take all the chiefs of the people and hang them in the sun before the Lord, that the fierce anger of the Lord may turn away from Israel. And Moses said to the judges of Israel, each of you kill those of his men who have yoked themselves to Baal of Peor. And then verse 9 goes on to say, those who died by the plague were 24,000. And so Balaam and Balak could not defeat Israel in a frontal uh, military attack. But they were able to come in through the back door, through sexuality and, and, and really gluttony to destroy the people of God. Uh, not to destroy them, but, 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 to, but to greatly diminish the people of God and to affect their relationship with God. And so as we look at Revelation 2, verse 14 through 15, this is the exact same thing that is happening in Pergamum. The frontal assault of the people of Pergamum telling the Christians to deny Christ was not working. As we just read in the prior verses, uh, they were clinging and holding fast to the name of Jesus. And so Satan takes a backdoor approach to the Christians through sexuality and through gluttony and, and, and idolatry. He comes to attack the people of God. You know, this hits way too close to home in the church in America today. Uh, when Trish and I were in seminary, we were traveling and, and we were visiting a, a, a pastor uh, at, a, at a church of our denomination. He was known for his faithfulness to the word of God, his love for Jesus. And we set up this time to come and visit with him to see if there might be a position available for me. So we show up at the church, nobody is there. And so we drive to the manse, which is kind of up a hill. And when we get to the manse, a woman walks out and then he walks out and we said, hey, uh, we're here. He's like, oh yeah, I forgot. And we're like, hey, is that your wife? He said, no, it was a counseling appointment. And being a young seminary student, I'm like, I don't know any better, whatever, okay. Well, later we find out that he was in an extramarital affair. And so he was removed from the pulpit, removed from the Lord's Supper. By God's grace, he repented. His marriage was restored. He was restored to the Lord's table. But his sin was devastating to that church. I wish I could say that is an isolated uh, incident. But we see this almost everywhere in the American church and in the church worldwide. I can throw out names like Robbie Zachariah or Jerry Falwell or other names. I don't need to throw those names out. But these are people who never denied the name of Jesus. They held fast in the name of Jesus, even in the midst of assault. But the ancient, clever, subtle enemy came through the back door through sexual immorality, seduced these ministers of the gospel away from faithfulness to God. You know, this isn't, this isn't a political statement, but maybe you're aware there's a politician uh, who shared that he never meets alone with a woman. And he was ri ridiculed, ripped to shreds by, by people in both parties. And yet he is one of the few politicians 
that has no allegations of sexual immorality against him. You know, here at Jacob's Well Church, we know that, that we could easily be susceptible to these backdoor approaches of Satan. And so we never meet with someone of the opposite gender alone. We make sure someone else is in the building or we meet them in a public place like a coffee shop. Uh, there's sometimes there's emergencies like once every three years where we have to go pick someone up because they're in an emergency situation. And we call other pastoral staff. We call our spouse, make sure everyone knows and is okay with it. But in general, we never meet alone because we know that we are weak and we are susceptible to Satan's backdoor approaches. Now, this isn't only for ministry leaders. This is written to the church, to the church as a whole. And so I'm wondering if you're here today and you claim the name of Christ, you proudly proclaim that Jesus is Lord, and yet you have entertained certain sexual sins that would be grievous to the Lord. What we learn in this passage is this, this is this is the ancient approach of Balaam and ba- Balak and also the Nicolaitans. And that's what he says here, uh, that the Nicolaitans are promoting this. And so, so his first problem is the practice of sexual immorality. But the second problem is the permissiveness of sexual immorality. Look here in verse 15, and it's related to what we just read. But he says this, so also you have some, that is some in the church, who hold the teachings of the Nicolaitans. The teachings of the Nicolaitans was basically the teachings of Balaam and Balak brought to modern day life. And the teachings of the Nicolaitans was probably something like this, that in Jesus, we are free. We are free to do whatever we want, whenever we want. We can sleep with whoever we want, whenever we want. And Jesus is rebuking the church for tolerating sexual immorality in the church. See, it is one thing to wrestle with sexual immorality, which we all should be doing, to seek to put to death sexual immorality. But it is quite a different thing to allow unrepentant sexual immorality. You know, we have had couples come to our church wanting to be married, who are sleeping together, and we will say, um, we'd love to marry you, but you need to repent. You need to pursue purity before God. We understand you will be tempted. We expect there to be temptation. You should have accountability. You should pursue faithfulness before God, but you should be repentant. And they will look at us like we have three eyes. Like who in the world believes this anymore? And some have walked away from the church because of that. There are churches as you drive by that will that we waving rainbow flags, not to remind us of the promises given to Noah that God will never flood the earth ever again but to promote sexual immorality in the church. There are churches that do nothing about those in unrepentant adultery or fornication or all sorts of sexual sin. They're holding to the teachings of the Nicolaitans, which allows a sexuality that is inconsistent with biblical teaching. You know, Pastor Sam Alberry is a man who wrestles with same-sex attraction and has committed uh, himself to a life of 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 celibacy to be faithful to God. And he has a line that I love that he says. He says this, none of us are sexually straight. All of us are perverse in our sexuality. You see, the problem Jesus is addressing are not those who are wrestling, seeking to mortify sexual sin, but those who are not wrestling with it, those who are not seeking to mortify it, those who baptize it and say it is okay to do. Again, this is very close in the American church. And so we must be careful to not accept the teaching of the Nicolaitans, 
but to stay faithful in Christ and to seek to put sin to death or else sin will be putting us to death. And so just to recap, Jesus praises the church in Pergamum uh, for holding fast to Jesus and not denying the faith, even in the midst of a very pagan world. But then Jesus also issues his problems with the church in Pergamum, that they practice sexual immorality and that there is permissiveness for this within the people of God. The final thing we see is the promises of Jesus to the church in Pergamum. Jesus offers two promises to the church in Pergamum. And which promise you receive is contingent on how you respond to verse 16. Look at verse 16 with me. Jesus starts by saying this, therefore repent. Therefore, because of your sexual practices, because of your sexual permissiveness, repent. Repent to God. Now, what does it mean to repent? Well, repentance uh, does mean confessing our sin, uh, not making any excuses for it. Like, you know, my husband or my wife are inattentive to me, or I'm single and I want to be married, or any of those things. But owning our sin and, and confessing it to God and grieving over our sin, because we know that it causes destruction to loved ones, to us, but it is also offensive to God. And so repenting, confessing our sin to God, asking for his forgiveness, knowing that it is granted to us in Christ, but then also turning from our sin and making plans to never return to it again, whether that be accountability or some other thing. But that's what repentance looks like. And that's what Jesus is calling this church to do. And so with great fervency, we must repent of our brokenness and uh, idolatry-minded hearts. And then he gives uh, this promise to those who do not repent. It's a sad promise, a promise of war. Look at verse 12 with me. He says, and to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, the words of him who has a sharp two-edged sword. So that's verse 12. So that's how Jesus is introduced. Uh, We hear of this sharp two-edged sword throughout scripture. We hear about it in Hebrews. We heard about it uh, prior in the book of Revelation. And typically when we think of the sharp two-edged sword, we think of the word of God, which it is, but we think of it in its use towards believers, which is wonderful. The use of the two-edged sword for believers is to cut away sin. Uh, it's, It's actually, if you can imagine someone in bondage and ropes, it's to cut the rope. Uh, to free us from our sin. That is its use for believers. But for those who will not repent, it has a different use. And that use is not to cut them free, but to bring judgment upon them. And that's what we see here in verse 16. It says, therefore repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. We read about Jesus using the sword in this way, in the way of judgment in Revelation chapter 19. When we turn to Revelation chapter 19, you don't have to turn there, I'll read it for you. In verse 15 it says, from Jesus' mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of the God Almighty. And then it skips down to verse 21 in Revelation 19. And he says, And the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of Jesus, who was sitting on the horse, and all the birds were gorged with their flesh. And so this is an unhappy promise. For those who will not repent, the sword will come against you. The sword of God's word will bring judgment against you. And it will bring ultimately destruction. That's an unhappy promise. 
But then there is a happy promise, a happy promise for those who do repent. There are gifts that Jesus gives to those who repent. The first gift is hidden manna. Look at verse 17 with me. He says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, that's the one who is repentant, the one who looks to the blood of the Lamb. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna. Now, just trying to be quick with this, the manna that we're familiar with in the Bible is the manna that is given to the people of God when they're wandering in the wilderness that God brings down uh, from heaven upon them to supply for their needs. That is the manna that we're aware of. Uh, Here it is talking about hidden manna, meaning it is food for God's people that is not yet seen. And so it is manna that is reserved for those who repent. It is manna reserved for those who go into heaven. And there is disagreement by commentators on what this hidden manna is, but I think the context of this passage really gives us a pretty good guess at what it is. Remember that one of the temptations of the people of God in Pergamum was to eat food sacrificed to idols, probably delicious meat sacrificed to idols. And here Jesus is saying, you do not need to eat that meat because I am going to provide you a better meal in heaven, which is hidden manna. We get a better idea of this as we see the second promise. Not only does he promise hidden manna to those who repent, but also a white stone. The verse continues and he says, to the one who conquers, I will get some of the hidden manna and I will give him a white stone with a name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Now, why is a white stone special? Again, commentators speculate all over the place. But one of the things white stones were used for was that after an athletic event, the one who uh, was a champion or the one who conquered or the one who did well was given a white stone to come to a banquet that evening. Now, this is my speculation. It would make sense to me that they would write their name on the stone and give it to them. That may not be true, but I would think if you're given an invitation, you'd probably note who's coming to that. Um, but, But what we see here is that Jesus is using this illustration most likely to say that you have been invited to a banquet. You have been invited to a supper where there is this hidden manna for you to feast upon. And so as we read on the book of Revelation, what we find out is that there is coming a supper for believers, for those who have repented and trusted in Christ for their salvation. It is the marriage supper of the Lamb. And so if you could turn there to Revelation chapter 19, because I want you to see this with me, the description of the supper that awaits those who are repentant and trusting Christ for their salvation. Revelation chapter 19, verse 6 through 9. This is the description of the marriage supper of the Lamb. And it says this, Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like a roar of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, be bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And then says this, and the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those, that is the repentant, those who trust in Christ, blessed are those who are invited, potentially with a white stone, to the marriage supper of the lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. Friends, this is the good news for the sexually immoral, 
for those who have been addicted to pornography, for those who are engaged in premarital or extramarital sexual, sexual relations, for those who have committed adultery, physical or emotional, for those who wrestle with homosexuality, for those who have been convicted of being child molesters or sex predators or those who are pornographers. This is good news for all idolaters that for anyone who repents, anyone who repents and trusts in Christ for their salvation, that God has granted forgiveness and grace and has invited them to a heavenly banquet. This is such good news for those who deserve the wrath of the sword, but instead have been given the grace of heaven for those who deserve the judgment of God, but whose judgment has been taken upon Christ at the cross, that Christ has taken the cup of the wrath that we deserve so that we could receive the cup of God's blessing for all eternity. This is such good news that no matter how much you have sinned or how far you have sinned, that all who trust in Christ for their salvation can be forgiven and feast on the hidden manna with Christ forever. You know, in Swamico, uh, there's a restaurant called Chives. Some of you are probably familiar with it. And I've heard rumors of this. I've never, never been there, but I hear that there's kind of this secret table with the chef. Maybe you've been there. I don't know. Um, I think you probably have to shell quite a bit of money to do that. And I have six kids, so that's not happening. Um, but but, but so, so you get to go and you get to eat this elaborate, amazing meal with the chef. And it's just this, this glorious supper. You know, we have something so much wonderful coming our way. And it's not, it's not exclusive. It's very inclusive. It's for anyone who repents. You don't need to have a lot of money. All you have to do is repent of your sin and trust in Christ. And you are welcome to this marriage supper of the Lamb. Let me end with this. Um, one of my favorite illustrations that I've probably shared too much, but I don't care, uh, is from a pastor named Matt Chandler. And he talks about when he was a freshman in college and he sat next to this 26-year-old single gal in his class and she had never been to church, uh, didn't know much about Jesus. And so he started to dialogue her, uh, with her about Jesus. And, and as they sought to minister to her, they would go and they would, they would, do, uh, they would take care of her daughter while she would go out. Um, sometimes it was to be in an extramarital affair. Uh, but as they continued to minister to her, uh, they, they, one of Matt's friends was playing a concert um, at, at a local place, and he was a Christian, and it was an outreach event. And so Matt invited this woman to come to the concert. And so she comes to the concert, and the concert's great. It's wonderful. Uh, but then a pastor gets up, and a pastor starts to preach about sexuality. And it was very much a fear-mongering sermon, uh, not focused on the grace of Jesus at all, but just basically saying, you know, shape up, right? And so his illustration was that he grabbed a rose and he said, look how pretty this rose is. And he smelled it and he said, it's wonderful. And then he passed it out. And he said, I want you to pass this around. And there were probably hundreds of college students. And I said, I want you to smell it. I want you to touch it, feel how wonderful it is. And he passes it around. And so he gets to the end of his sermon and he has the rose come up front. And he, his big crescendo to the sermon is, who would want this rose, right? Who would want this? It's all messed up. The, the petals are falling off. It's, it's broken. He's like, who would want this rose? And this is his big proclamation for why we must stay sexually pure. And yet Matt Chandler says in, that men, in the midst of that proclamation, it took everything inside of him to say, Jesus wants the rose. 
That's the point of the gospel, that he who knew no sin became sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus wants the rose. Friends, the good news of the gospel is Jesus wants the rose. He wants us with all of our brokenness, all of our sin, all of our staining. So he calls for us to repent, to repent and to trust in Christ for our salvation. You know, there's a day coming where the marriage supper of the Lord will be, will be something that we will be a part of. And when we arrive, what we will find is that we have not just been invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb, but that we are the bride. We are his precious and beloved bride who has been washed by the blood of Jesus and made white as snow. Christian, hold fast to the name of Jesus. Even in the midst of a satanic world, repent of your sexual immorality and permissiveness and set your heart upon Jesus, our great groom who has prepared for us a supper in heaven for all eternity. Let's pray. Lord, we come confessing our brokenness, knowing uh, that it doesn't have to define us, that it doesn't have to rule us, that it doesn't have to enslave us, that it doesn't have to condemn us to hell for all eternity. And so we come repenting of our sin, knowing that your righteousness is applied to us, that you have paid for all of our sin upon the cross. And that for us, because, because we come repenting, even with weak repentance, because we come repenting, that you have prepared for us a meal, that you, our groom, will come and dine with us, your bride. And we long for that day. Lord, help us to be satisfied in your love that we will not pursue other loves that are destructive to us and dishonoring to you. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.